Yeah, today's Bible reading is going to be from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, 14, sorry, 14, to chapter 13, verse 14. Um, now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, uh, yet by God's power we will live with him in our dealing with you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do, not realize, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will, do not, that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we, we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be, one, be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Wendy. Oh, welcome uh, to church. Uh, if you're here in this room or next door at the hall, hello and online. So good of you to join us. Uh, all right, let me just get set up. H S C. 
If you're not from New South Wales, if you weren't born here, it's the highest school certificate. We're actually about halfway through. HSE, um, I think for the majority of us, right, this is something that you may have already gone through. So what was it like for you? What was the HSE like for you? For those still in school, high school, how is that sense of impending doom feeling? Now, I didn't think the HSE really affected me that much. It was a long time ago, but uh, I didn't think it affected me. I thought, okay, it was hard exam, I did it, done. Relief. But actually, for years, even decades afterwards, I was still getting nightmares about the HSC, so obviously it affected me more than I thought. Now, those of, uh, those of us who are Asians, we have a difficult, uh, perhaps even a traumatic relationship, don't we, with exams and tests. I mean, how can we not have a traumatic relationship with an exam when we all understand what this feels like, right? Have you seen these uh, Asian dad memes? A is average, B is bad, C is can't eat, D is don't come home, F is find new family. And in case that's not enough, there's a whole heap of these. Just leave it up there for you to have a look at. Hopefully you can see. My favorite is, you got B, you're not Bijan, you're Asian. Anyway. Now, jokes aside, the um, reason why I want to talk about tests and exams is actually, I don't know if you noticed when Wendy read it out earlier, the heart of this section in 2 Corinthians, right at the end, is all about passing or failing tests. In fact, there's two tests that are mentioned. And these two tests have much more at stake than even the HSC. You see, fail one set of these tests means that you don't have God's approval as a leader. But you fail the second set of these tests means that you're not actually even saved. Right? A lot is at stake. And I feel like God really does want to speak to us today. So let me pray and invite Him to do that. Father, we pray that by Your Holy Spirit, You might do Your powerful, sanctifying work so that we might be made holy. And if that means today that there are certain members here listening in person or online who you really need to target and speak to, I pray that I'll get out of the way and the Holy Spirit, you will do that speaking. In Jesus' name, amen. I just remind you a bit of the context. We are right at the end. This is our last sermon of the 2 Corinthians series. And we're at the end of Paul's very emotional letter uh, to the church that he's founded, the church that he loves, but a church, as we've seen, has been danger of being seduced, dragged away by false leaders. Now, last week, you remember Pastor Dom spoke to us, and Paul turns their standard of greatness completely upside down, doesn't he? By, and he boasts. Uh, not about power and strength and success, which is what they like to do, but instead he boasts about his weaknesses, his sufferings, his ongoing troubles, his thorn in the flesh, we would have remembered. And in the midst of this, we actually reach last week the, 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 the theme verses, really, of the whole book of 2 Corinthians. Let me just remind you, um, Jesus begins, uh, Paul is quoting Jesus, who says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Right? These really capture the whole book that we've seen. That's what we've called this series, The Strength of Weakness. 
Now, in, in our final section, the fi- final few verses, chapter and a half of 2 Corinthians, Paul is giving his last plea to this church. After 12 chapters, right? After 12 long chapters, as we get to the 13th chapter, what are his final words to such a troubled group of Christians? Well, the theme verses, the key verses of our section are actually in 13 verses 5 and 6. And these are the ones I'm going to use as a window into the rest of the passage. Look at them again. Paul says in chapter 13 verse 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. All right, you see there mentioned two tests. One for the Corinthians, another one for Paul. Uh, the first is a test, by the way, not just for the Corinthians, but it's a test for really for all Christians. Because it's about whether someone truly belongs to Jesus. Someone is truly in the faith, verse 5. Now, the second is a test for Paul as their leader, as their pastor, as their apostle. Right? Verse 6, he says, we, and that, that, that's who he's talking about, we, him and his, his other fellow leaders, his apostles, we have not failed the test. Now, this one is not a, the same test as the first one. It's not about whether someone's a Christian, but it's about whether you are a legitimate God-approved leader. All right? Now, that second test on leadership we'll tackle first, because the first half of the passage, really, from the middle of chapter 12, while not mentioning this idea of the test, it's actually, in some sense, all about that. All right, so I've got a few points on your outlines. Again, I encourage you to go online and check out the digital outlines, go.swec.org.au slash outline. Firstly, the leader's test. What makes a person a God-approved leader? Now, whether you are a leader in church at any level, by the way, that includes youth ministry, kids ministry, or in the home, right? A lot of us may not be leaders in church in, in an official capacity, but you are a husband or a wife. You're an older sibling, perhaps, and especially those of you who are parents, and in some sense, that's what the whole of 2 Corinthians has about, has been about, all right? Paul is giving a defense for his leadership, for his legitimacy. But in this final emotional plea that he ends the letter on, there's so much that we can glean. Now, I'm not going to go through verse by verse. It's a bit too long, so I'm just going to quickly give a summary. Now, first, though, there are those marks of a special kind of leader that actually doesn't apply to any of us. All right, I just want to mention that first, get it out of the way. In chapter 12, verse 12, by the way, keep your Bibles open or on the app, you'll see all the Bible verses printed out for you. Uh, 12, verse 12, Paul talks about the marks of a true apostle. Now, apostle, capital A apostles, were a select group of only 13 in the first generation of Christians. All right, and these marks, he talks about our signs, wonders, miracles, and along with that, endurance. Now, I don't have time to go through that right now, but again, these are unique to those 13. We're going to focus on the marks of the true leader that do apply to all of us, to all us non-apostle leaders. And these are the tests that matters. Now, they're summarized on the slide and also on your digital outlines. So we're going to quickly go through the first four. I'm going to go through each one, show you where it's from. But then on the last one, the fifth one, we're going to pause and spend a bit more time on that. Okay, so what are some of the tests for God's approved leaders? Number one, your goal is to build up. Now, if you were with me a couple of weeks ago, this was already mentioned in chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 8, if you're wondering. Here it's mentioned twice again, so have your Bibles open. Chapter 12, verse 19, Paul there says, everything we do is for your strengthening or your building up. 
Chapter 13, verse 10, he says, chapter 13, verse 10, This is why I write these things, that when I am absent, so that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for what? For building you up, not for tearing you down. All right, the goal is the first test. The goal of a true leader of God is that they are there to build up. Secondly, the motivation of a true leader is sacrificial love. Now, we read it a bit earlier, but in chapter 12, the Corinthians thought that Paul should have charged them money for his ministry, like all the big-name celebrity speakers of their day. And when he didn't, and instead he collected money for other churches in need, well, some thought, firstly, Paul was you know, not really worth listening to, but the others thought that maybe he was doing a bit of a dodgy thing, that he was uh, secretly pocketing this collection for himself. And that's why um, in chapter 12, he goes on a defense about being a burden and so on. So have a look at chapter 12, verse 15. Paul says, at the end of this argument, I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? All right, Paul's saying, I have been sacrificially, gladly sacrificially loving towards you. That's motivated everything I do when it comes to this whole whether or not to collect money and you know, all that kind of stuff. All right, so motivation, sacrificial love. Third, their standard has to be the truth. Chapter 13, verse 8. Look there, 13, verse 8. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Now, we just had love. Now, we got truth. It's really important. If you didn't know already, the love and truth really must go together, right? Someone once said, love without truth is like jelly. Yeah, it might be comforting and affirming, but it really doesn't help you. Truth without love is like a wrecking ball. It might be helpful, but will destroy someone in the process, right? Love and truth go together. Standard is truth. Thirdly, or fourthly, we're up to, the posture of a leader is humility. All right, look at the next verse, chapter 13, verse 9. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. Now, this one we've seen again and again, especially last week. Paul doesn't mind looking weak in their eyes, according to their standards, because the standards of Jesus' followers, and especially his leaders, are completely upside down to the world's. All right, now we get to the fifth one. This is an interesting one. The test of a good leader, a godly leader, the emotions, surprising, fear and grief. What do I mean? Go back to chapter 12, verse 20. We're going to read chapter 12, verse 20, verses uh, 20 and 21. Paul says there, and he's really opening up, isn't he? For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I'll be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. All right, since the other four points have kind of already been made in, in our journey through 2 Corinthians, this is the one, a new one, that I kind of want to spend a bit more time on because I think it's a helpful window to see whether we are the kind of leaders that Paul was. You see, every leader will experience times when the people they lead, right, and the people they're responsible for, go astray or do the wrong thing. Now, here I don't mean when they've sinned against you personally or hurt you personally. That happens a lot in leadership as well. But I mean when someone is kind of walking away from the truth or there's actually sin in their lives. 
Now, if you are a leader in church and you've been a leader for any amount of time, you will have experienced it, right? You leaders here, you know what that feels like. But also, if you're a parent, right, you experience this on a daily occurrence, probably. Now, here's the thing. Let me ask you, what are the most immediate emotions that you feel and express when that happens? What are the most immediate, reflexive, natural emotions you feel when someone you lead begins to walk away or is caught in sin? What is it? What's the emotion? It's almost always what? Anger. Yeah? Frustration. Something like that. How do we express these emotions usually in our leadership? Well, lots of different ways. Sometimes... You might express it by exploding, raging. Well, sometimes it's sort of the passive-aggressive type of expression. Or you take emotional revenge by giving them the silent treatment. Or sometimes it's expressed by just giving up. Like, that's it, I'm withdrawing, I give up. Now let me suggest this. Anger and frustration, while it's understandable as default emotions, because who doesn't experience them? Let me suggest that anger and frustration are not and should not be the ones that we as leaders and parents give fuel to and express. You got that? Anger and frustration shouldn't be the ones that we give fuel to and express. Rather, we should look a little bit deeper and be more honest at what lies underneath. The fears and the grief that lie underneath. I mean, think about it. Paul, here. How much anger and frustration and even rage would you have felt if you were Paul and would have been justifiably feeling if you were Paul in relation to this church, right? I mean, we've been journeying with Paul with the Corinthians, not just one Corinthians, not just two Corinthians, but also one Corinthians. All right, two letters. This is a troubled church with a troubled relationship with Paul. How much anger and frustration would have just been natural for Paul? And yet, look here. Instead of expressing those, what does he do? He takes a vulnerable position and instead expresses his fears, his grief. And the reason why he expresses those is because his goal, his motivation, his posture, and his standard are that of a godly leader. That's the way, you see, to be sacrificially loving, to be humble, to be truthful, and to build someone up. You got that? So let me give you, and we're going to do this throughout the whole sermon, let me give you some diagnostic questions, right? When someone you care for or lead, again, not just church leaders, but parents, when someone is caught in wrongdoing or sin, have a look at them. And they're also on the digital outlines. First, ask yourself the question, why am I upset or angry or frustrated? Really, why am I upset? Is it really because they, like the Corinthians, are walking away from the Lord? Or, if I'm really honest, is some of my anger because I feel personally offended? I feel let down. I feel maybe used or disrespected. Not that they're not valid, but sort out where your anger is actually directed. Is it really because of God or is it actually? The second diagnostic question. Let's go a bit deeper. What fears and grief are underneath those emotions? You see, dig deeper under anger and there's almost always a fear. So be honest with ourselves. What fears are driving my anger? 
Because your fears can be valid and godly, like Paul's, right? Paul is afraid that they will remain in unrepentant sin and be in danger of God's judgment. That's a really legitimate fear. But fears can also be self-centered, can't they? Sometimes I'm angry because I'm afraid of losing influence or control over a person. Sometimes I'm angry because I'm afraid of being taken advantage of or being disrespected. Sometimes I'm angry because I'm afraid of losing a friend, losing someone's love of approval. And self-centered fears, you see, will drive us to react in ways that won't be sacrificially loving or humble or truthful or for the purposes of building someone up. You got that? Self-centered fears will drive you in the opposite direction of what a godly leader should be, a godly parent should be. Self-centered fears may cause me to be, well, too harsh in my rebuke or too merciless in my judgment or too quick to give up on someone. Or it may, in your case, it depends on your conflict styles, it may cause you to withdraw, avoid speaking the truth altogether, rather than actually lovingly correct someone who is in the wrong. You see, it can go both ways. It can end up in too harsh a confrontation or no confrontation at all, and neither are right, but both may be, what, motivated by self-centered fears. So leaders, parents especially, I've had one of those weeks where I've really kind of like, oh yeah, gosh, I need to preach this to myself. We need to be honest about our fears, be honest about our grief when things go wrong in the people we lead. You see, as sinners ourselves, and someone who really helped me uh, realize this and understand this is uh, John Walsh, uh, uh, one of the guys at Bankstown, one of the guys we support. Um, uh, he wrote a really helpful little article, and he, he was suggesting that as sinners ourselves, the most appropriate response to when we see sin in others and sin in the world should very, very rarely be anger. All right? God knows how to be justly angry. We generally very much fail at that. And so the most appropriate response to wrongdoing in the world, in others, it should actually, rather than anger, should be grief. Should be grief. Have you thought about that? The most appropriate response when we see sin in the world and others should be grief. Because why? We're sinners ourselves. We're no better in that sense. And so leaders who sacrificially love and are humble and truthful and want to build up others they lead, rather than tearing down the people they lead, we will need to be honest about our fears and our grief. We will need to repent of the self-centered ones. We will need to learn by God's grace to express the godly ones rather than anger and frustration. You got that? And again, if you've ever been in leadership, if you're a parent, this is hard. It's hard. It's unnatural in some sense. It involves a level of being emotionally vulnerable, of admitting to fears, examining ourselves. It's really uncomfortable. It's painful even. But it's exactly the kind of leader that God approves of. That's the first set of tests, the leader's test. Well, if you've been switching off because maybe you think, I'm not a leader, I'm not a parent, time to re-engage because 
Now we come to the Christian's test. We've seen Paul has been so patient with the Corinthians, even to seem weak and ineffective. But before he signs off, he wants them to realize at some point that they will be disciplined if they keep going the way they are. Have a look again at chapter 13. I'll put it up for you. Paul says, this will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. And in that context, he tells them, remember the key verses, verses 5 and 6, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Now, when it comes to examining ourselves, they're really likely to be two extremes, all right? There are those who very rarely do so, very rarely examine themselves. And even when you do, you're not very aware of your own faults. You're pretty quick at seeing in others, but you hardly think that anything is ever your fault. That's one extreme. But there's the other extreme, isn't there? Some of you are too introspective. You know, introspective, kind of self-looking, looking at yourself. You think and chew over everything you say and do. And perhaps because of that, you live in constant guilt and shame and feelings of unworthiness. Now, they are both extremes, and no one's kind of, not many people are extreme on either end. But I, I, just, I do wonder, which one do you tend towards? Yeah? Have a think now. Which one do you tend towards? The person who, who doesn't examine enough or the person who examines too much? I'm going to address the first group first. See, there are those among us and those listening online that need to do this self-examination. You need to do it right now. And I hope you're not just hearing me say that. I hope in some way God is speaking to you and saying, you need to do this right now. And there is no easy and comfortable way of saying it, but I think this is what the passage is saying. Now, I know this is what the passage is saying. Your eternity might be at stake if you are unwilling to examine yourself and unwilling to take action. Now, Paul didn't want to use his apostolic authority in this way, but don't, don't forget chapter 13, verse 2. He says, at my next visit, I will if I have to. And don't forget that judgment and discipline over the unrepentant, it doesn't just happen on judgment day. This is rare, but when it does happen in the Bible, it's pretty terrifying, okay? Those of you who know your, little, your Bibles a little bit more, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, remember those two? They were struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. Or even 1 Corinthians 11, just the book before this. Uh, some in the Corinthian church were ill and died over some misuse or sin over the Lord's Supper, Paul mentions. We don't know exactly the details, but that's pretty terrifying, right? Or look with me at Galatians on the overhead. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. God's grace is wonderful, but it's not to be abused or taken lightly. So there is, you see, an important place for godly fear when you serve a holy God. So Paul says, examine yourselves. 
So let's first talk about, from the passage, sins to watch out for. Now, Paul doesn't give a list of every kind of sin. He doesn't. But he highlights two groups of sins that are specific to the Corinthians. And while we can't cover every kind of sin, we might as well go with these two, okay? Um, The sins are all social or sexual in nature. Social or sexual. Um, Have a look at chapter 12, verse 20. Have a look at 12, verse 20. Paul says that I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. What are these? These are all social sins. They affect our relationship with each other within the church. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I'll be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of. Second set, impurity, sexual sins, debauchery in which they have indulged. Those second ones are all sexual sins. Now, we could spend a lot of time just going through each item line by line, but I think it might be more helpful for us to just ask ourselves, with the Holy Spirit's help, some diagnostic questions. Are you ready to ask yourself this? Social. What are the strained relationships of conflict and disunity I have with others? Particularly fellow Christians, but also outside the church. How did I contribute to that? That second part is really important because very rarely it's just one party's fault. Very rarely. How did I contribute to that? Is there in me any type of, um, look at the list, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder? Okay, Ask yourself that question, the social ones. Second set, well, how is my sexual purity? Both in thought, in my mind, and in what I do. And that is whether I am single or dating or married. How is your sexual purity? As you examine yourself, remember it's not perfection, but repentance that God is after. Um, chapter three, 13, verse 11. Have a look at the, uh, one of the last verses, 13, verse 11. Paul says, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. Um, It's all the social stuff, right? The opposite of the list before. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, that word restoration in chapter 13, verse 11, if you've got an older NIV, it's translated as perfection. So it sounds like, you know, strive for perfection. It's probably mistranslated. And that's why the, uh, the newer version of NIV is translated as restoration. Um, The word actually means not perfection, but amending of what's been broken. That's kind of what it means. Even maturity is other other translations will have. The point of self-examination isn't that you would pat yourselves on the back because you got an A or full marks. It's so that you can be made aware of sins and blind spots and repent of them. Now, what does repent mean? It's not just feeling sorry or guilty. Repenting in the Bible is firstly being honest. Right? Being honest and seeing sin and then confessing it, asking God and others that you've sinned against for forgiveness. Then it's actually taking action to mend what's broken as much as possible and taking practical steps to change. Right? Repentance is all of that. It's not just feeling guilty. It's actually making a U-turn in life, taking action to change. So let me give you some diagnostic questions. Well, we're not aiming for perfection, but repentance. So ask yourself these questions. When God last revealed sin in your life, and only you would know that, it might have been just a quick pang of conscience, it might be something that has kind of been weighing down on you, because it's a persistent sin. 
Let me ask you, were you quick to repent or were you quick to ignore? Deal with it later. Just won't. Were you quick to repent or quick to ignore? What about the second question? In conflict and disunity, have you done everything you can to forgive and or to repent and or to reconcile? Depends on your conflict or situation. You see, if you're in the habit of ignoring sin, of putting off repentance, as I said, there's no easy way to say this. But you're in grave spiritual danger. Isn't that what the passage is saying? If we're in the habit of ignoring sin, putting off repentance, it's actually really serious. Which means that there are some people here, and you may just be too comfortable and too confident in your position. Maybe you grew up at church. You've been baptized and confirmed. You're a church partner. You're a church leader. You experience peace and assurance in worship. But sin is persistently being ignored. You don't really grieve and hate sin. You don't take responsibility for the part you played in conflict and disunity. It's always someone else's fault. Can't deal with it. It's their problem. And what repentance you do is shallow and just going through the motions. If that's you, God is saying to you today, be warned. Be warned. Be careful. Examine yourself to see if you are really in the faith. Sometimes you hop online and you want to hear preachers that actually will tell you the truth and smack you around a little bit. Uh, not quite anyone quite like Paul Washer. He's very biblical, he's very good, but uh, every time you listen to Paul Washer, it's like, gosh, need to do some repenting. He says this, If a person professes faith in Christ and yet falls away or makes no progress in godliness, it does not mean that he has lost his salvation. It reveals that he was never truly converted. Wow, huh? Now at this point, those of you who tend towards the second extreme, the introspective, examine a lot, too much, I know you must be feeling pretty despairing, right? Because you're not one of those who don't self-examine. Your problem is you examine maybe too much and you're constantly feeling guilty and ashamed and unworthy. And so at this point, I do need to put a warning sticker to self-examination. See, even in this passage, self-examination, let me just say, is not according to your own feelings and emotions, okay? It's a dangerous standard to go by. The standard needs to be truth. Or as 1 John puts it, if our hearts condemn us, 1 John 3.20, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything, all right? When you examine yourself, the standard is not one that you set for yourself or others set for you. Do not look inwards. Look outwards to God's Word. That's objective. 
And if and when sin has been revealed, and maybe that's happened to you today, and sin has been confessed and repented of, and I hope that's happening today, right? The assurance that you are forgiven, that you are saved, again, don't ultimately look inwards either. That too, the assurance, the peace, will also come by looking outwards to God's promises, especially His promises in the death of Jesus on your behalf to pay for all your sins and His resurrection to assure you of new life. Look outwards to God's promises. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century prince of preachers, he's called, he says, Think not of the sinner or the greatness of his sin, but think of the greatness of the Savior. Look outwards. Or I love this verse from... um, It is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. No matter what you've done, and especially if you're feeling convicted today, no matter what you've done, Christ has paid for your sin. You can be forgiven So come to Him, run to Him today. Especially if you're not yet a Christian, not yet a follower of Jesus. No matter what you've done, God means it, no matter what you've done. Jesus has died so that you can be forgiven. So today, put your trust in Him. So let me give you some diagnostic questions, especially you're that second set of persons. Sorry, the text is a bit small. I had to squeeze three in. Um, But in case you can't read it, let me read it out for you. First one. Ask yourself, is there an objective command that you've broken? Or are your feelings of guilt and unworthiness just vague in general? This is important because the Holy Spirit is never vague. You got that? The Holy Spirit will not be vague. If He wants you to change something, you'll know what that is. So vague feelings of unworthiness and guilt, beware of that. Is there an objective command that you've broken? Number two, have you confessed and repented of these sins? And if the answer is yes, then ask yourself, what does God say of me and my sin because of Jesus? All right, you're going to have to look in the Bible for that. What does God say of you if you've repented and confessed? He says that you are no longer guilty. In fact, we do this every week. This is why we have corporate confession and the words that are said afterwards are just as important as the confession, right? The declaration that you are forgiven. Those are God's promises. So what does God say of you? Because of Jesus. Tell yourself these things, especially if you're feeling still weighed down by guilt and shame. And number three, what will you now do with those lingering feelings of guilt and shame and unworthiness? I'll suggest that what you need to do is to ignore them and to tell them to shut up. They're not from the Holy Spirit, right? If you look outwards at God and His promises, and you still have those feelings of guilt and shame and unworthiness, then it's time to tell them to know what to do, right? Speak to yourself what God says of you, not what your guilty feelings, vague feelings, says of you. All right, time to conclude. I'm going to get the band to come up here and get ready to lead us into the response song. We are now at the end of 2 Corinthians. Feel free to walk up, don't worry. Um, and if you've been journeying with us in 2 Corinthians, this is perhaps the most raw, the most personal, the most honest letter that you will ever read of the Apostle Paul, right? Now, we don't know what happened after Paul wrote it, but most scholars guess that this letter probably had a positive outcome and the Corinthians were likely to have repented and restored. 
And so today, if any part of God's word has made you uncomfortable, that's actually a good thing. It's the mercy of God. God is using it to do in you what he did to this really troubled church back in the first century. So it's time to put yourself to the test, isn't it? For those in leadership and for every single person who claims to follow Jesus, put yourself to the test. Now be warned, it's not easy. I do this well and you will realize how hard it is, how vulnerable and honest and raw you need to be with yourself and others. You will feel laid bare. Your fears will be exposed. You will grieve. In other words, you'll feel weak, very weak. But as we've seen throughout the whole letter, it's in weakness that God's power is made perfect. So in the weakness that comes from self-examination, let me just say that you will experience more grace and more joy than you can possibly imagine. Why don't we pray and get ready to sing? Father God, I pray that those here who may have really felt the weight of your spirit working in them, that today you will be completing that good work. I pray that those who are yet to feel that, who maybe just want to ignore it, put off the confessions and the repentance, Father, please don't let them do that. They are too precious to you to allow them to keep heading in the way that they are. So whatever needs to be done, Holy Spirit, will you now do it in us? In Jesus' name, amen.